You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lasseter. On today's episode, I interview Danny Pensack, who's the CEO and co-founder of RightFoot. With over a decade of experience working in the financial technology space, she started her career leading API strategies for IBM's banking clients. At Stanford's MBA program, she and her co-founders dug deep into the problem of student debt, collaborating with professors and classmates. RightFoot's leadership team has all taken student loans and understood the real challenges it presents to the millions of Americans. The team started RightFoot to break apart the student debt crisis, starting with student debt. RightFoot has two of the top five banks working with them, all sorts of developers, including payroll companies, student loan employee benefit companies, and others. They have investment of over $5 million from Bain Capital Ventures, Box Group, and many other distinguished angels. She talks about that some. We get into things like when you should pivot or persevere. How do you know if your idea needs changing? What are some of the inequities that are embedded in the student loan market? What is bottoms up selling and how it fits in? Founder dating, founder proposals, and how she decided to move to Singapore without knowing anyone there. I think it's a great episode, so please stay tuned. Danny, welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Miles. Appreciate you having me over. So why is there so much student debt? Yeah, there's a huge student debt crisis in the U.S., $1.7 trillion and growing at $33 billion a quarter, something that's showing no signs of slowing down. So why is there so much student debt? I mean, the cost of education has been growing enormously. And this is something that, you know, in the past recent years, it's growing at a much faster pace than it was previously as well. Yeah. When I worked in the higher education field, we always were wondering why is tuition growing faster than CPI or, you know, typical inflation. And I'm not sure I ever got to the real answer. (laughs) Yeah. I think even thinking about, you know, like when our parents went to school and what it cost for them compared to what it is today, it's just, you know, four or five, actually probably four or five times um, a quarter how much it is for us today. So it's really the burden is falling on us greatly. And how does RightFoot seek to address that? So we've actually built the first debt repayment infrastructure and started with student debt that streamlines student debt repayment across a fragmented market of loan servicers in the U.S. So if you think about the kind of the the landscape for student loan servicing, there are hundreds of different servicers and they all have backends that were built in the 1970s on COBOL. So the way that they validate and accept repayment, it looks different from one to the next. There's no streamlined solution there. And that's what we realized when we actually were hitting a student debt payment wall, um, you know, multiple years ago when we started working directly with employers to help them repay their employees' student loans. We realized that there was no good way to make those payments. We actually went originally to Stripe and said, hey, Stripe, you know, can we use your debt repayment APIs? We're ready for them. We're ready to add them to our product. 
And they said, you guys are crazy. We don't have that product. What you guys are talking about is this very verticalized debt repayment solution. And, you know, we're focused on getting the money in. We have this horizontal strategy. And so we don't do those direct integrations. And so what we realized is there was a huge gap for how debt is actually repaid. And it's really difficult for third parties to do because debt's not a routable account like a bank account. And so what we set out to do is actually integrate one by one directly with these loan servicers across the U.S. and streamline this messy payments process so that our clients didn't have to deal with that. And so that's what we do. We, we enable developers to quickly and easily add debt repayment as a feature of any application. And we've started with student debt. You've been very open about this pivot, the change from working directly with employers now to enabling other companies to work with employers or whatever to deliver these uh, debt payments. I, I think that'd be really fascinating to hear how you went through that decision to change what the company was all about. Yeah, definitely. So at Rightfoot, we have processes that we set. So for example, we'll set hypotheses. We'll understand what are we trying to solve? What are the biggest risks to our company? What are the opportunities? And every sprint we go about setting tests, actually testing them and understanding what that looks like and what the outcome would be. So while we were actually selling directly into employers, what we realized is that our back end, our backgrounds are actually much better suited to the infrastructure side of the problem, to actually solving this from an infrastructure API first perspective versus selling directly into employers. We were working with initial employers and we were onboarding their employees to our application that we had built out. And we started then going to some competitors in the space and saying, hey, you know, how are you guys doing payments today? Do you guys have challenges with the payments that you're making? And if we were to kind of change our company and actually focus on this infrastructure play, would you even leverage us? What would that look like? And so that's, a, you know, a scary thing to do as, as a founder in the space to say, hey, uh, you know, approach competitors and see what are their biggest challenges. But we found that actually to be there was a lot of demand for what we were selling and to sort of go about changing it before we actually dove in head first and then understanding why was our team actually much better equipped to be solving this problem through our connections, through our um, sort of our, our experience. You know, my background is I was previously in um, Asia. I was at IBM and I was leading API strategy for banking clients. And my co-founder, Will, was previously at Google and he's just spent decades scaling infrastructure and Deirdre was previously at Pepsi and she was launching new the world products there. And so what we realized is that at our core competency, we were much better at actually solving this infrastructure challenge versus selling directly into HR, which is really difficult as well. And so that's what we actually set about doing. We had a, a number of series of tests. We started to build our product. Um, we started to work directly with the loan servicers and we, we made this big pivot that really what we could tell was a much better fit for our company. Wonderful. Wonderful. That moment of reaching out to your competitors and asking if they want to become your customers, I can imagine that might've been awkward. Um, <laughs> yeah. how, how did you build the trust that they were willing to tell you about their problems? It definitely took a long time. And I wouldn't say all of the companies in that space were receptive for sure. Um, but it was really about 
mutual kind of intent to solve this huge problem, which is an inequity problem in the US. And, you know, as you mentioned, student debt is growing at such a fast pace, but it's more about the more so than the financial problem. It's about the social problem, right? So if you look at student debt, two thirds is actually held by women. Um, that's because we make less. It takes us longer to pay off our debt. And additionally, families would save less for women, even though we graduate at similar rates as men. If you look at uh, Black graduates, they oftentimes have extremely larger burdens of student debt. So what we're seeing is about two times as much student debt as white students. What we're seeing for LGBTQ community is that they own about $16,000 more in student debt on average. So this is something that when you really think about the impact of student debt as a whole, it's a huge social problem that's driving inequality. And if you think about what are the things that I can do as a borrower or that I can't do because I have student debt, it's, a, it's things like I can't buy a home, I can't save for retirement, I'm delaying starting a family, doing all of these things that are really exacerbating inequality in the U.S., and so the other companies in this space were likewise aligned to our missions as well. How can we tackle this growing problem in the U.S.? And so I think, you know, getting the um, sort of the courage to go and talk to competitors really comes from we're all coming from the same place and the same intent of wanting to solve this massive crisis. So being mission aligned gave you the courage internally and also built trust with your competitors now your potential customers. That's powerful. Exactly. And you also talked about setting goals and having hypotheses. It sounds like a lean startup type methodology of you know pivot or persevere. Were you consciously using that methodology? Definitely. So we actually, um, we took a class or actually a few classes at Stanford. So Deirdre and I met at Stanford's MBA program, probably the first week of school. And we had just taken out a ton of student debt for our education. And so we were just thinking about that a lot. And then we met Will at the end of our first year. And while we were at school, one of the classes that we were enrolled in was called the Lean Launchpad. And so that definitely uses that methodology. That's where we learned to set hypotheses and tests and to be able to go about with a very strict data-driven approach. Um, and when we entered that class, you know, we had a very different idea for what we wanted the company to be. But what happens is, you know, you have to talk to thousands of different users and you understand, do people really want what I'm selling? And am I solving a big problem? And you'll know when the answer is yes. And I think there was a point where we had to sort of come to terms with, we're not necessarily the best people for selling an employer benefits program directly to employers. What we are good at is product, right? So how can we sell into product leaders and engineers? How can we deliver a self-service experience? Um, and we're the right team to do that. And so being able to go about testing it in a very data-driven way was really helpful for us. Do you remember what that data point was that someone said, you know, we should probably think about something else. So I wouldn't necessarily say it was about 
the employer benefit because there are a number of really successful companies in the employer benefit space. And what we're seeing is, in fact, demand for that is growing tremendously. So since the legislation passed in December 2020, which enables employers to now pay off employee student debt tax-free up to $5,250 per employee per year, we've seen an explosion of demand for this product from employers. So those companies are actually doing really well well. It's really about at the time that A, that legislation did not exist and B, it wasn't necessarily the right fit for our team to be selling into HR because we didn't have really experience doing that before. The point is actually that there were better companies who were suited to doing that. And if we could actually empower them with the back end to be able to get them to market fast, for example, payroll companies, employer benefits companies, um, 401k companies, if we could instead just work with them and then they own their user experience entirely and can enable clients to turn this on and off like a light, that was a far more powerful experience. You talked about some of the types of customers. Can you elaborate and, and share mm -hmm. examples? Definitely, yeah. So RightFit falls into clients across three different buckets, so we call them. So the first is fintechs and financial institutions. So you could think of a company, for example, a neobank, a personal financial management application. You could think of um, a bank that you use um, for, for your digital banking experience who wants to add in student debt repayment as a feature of that application. So let's think about a Roundups app, for example. If I'm enabling a borrower to actually send $20 that's in their account, in their Roundups account, automatically to their highest interest loans every month, they could be sending saving thousands of dollars in interest and actually cutting out months of repayment time. So this experience is much better than, for example, let's say I have $20 in roundups in my Acorns account or wherever, and I want to actually send that to my student loans. Without this infrastructure, it's really difficult to do that. So I would say, okay, great, you know, log out of the Acorns experience, log into your loan servicer's website, log in and figure out how to add $20 extra um, to your principal. And that's a really tough thing to do, especially if you have a certain loan servicers out there, they, they don't make that experience really easily. Instead, if I could say, great, I'm going to do it from within the Acorns app. All I have to do is click a button. It could go automatically there. And that's how RightFoot comes in. You could also think of companies in this space we're powering, where we're enabling people to send rewards points automatically to their highest interest student loans. So that's a really exciting thing. What we actually ran was a study and we found that out of 400 borrowers, 22.55% said I would sign up for a credit card today that enables me to actually send the rewards points to my highest interest loans. That's something that was really unique where people said, yeah, that's like passively paying off my debt. I don't even have to think about it. And I'm helping myself with every purchase. I love that. And so these are the kind of user experiences that we are providing in that first bucket. In the second bucket, we're looking at companies in the employer benefits space. So we sell today into a 401k advisory firm where they sit alongside any 401k plan. And they say, you know, hey, Miles, your employer's offering you this 5% uh, match to 401k. 
but you're struggling to actually save for retirement. There are billions and billions of match dollars from employers that's left on the table every year because people just can't afford to save for retirement. And 70% of people who have student loans are struggling to save for retirement. So when you think about that, there are a lot of people who are leaving those match dollars on the table. What this company does is they said, hey, you can reallocate that, Miles. You want to send 3% to your student debt and 2% to 401k or vice versa? We can do that for you. And right foot's the back end that's underneath their umbrella that helps them get to market fast with that type of solution for their end clients. We're also looking at payroll companies here. Can they actually embed this tax-free student debt repayment benefit entirely within their own user experience? So they're no longer having their employees or their, or their end kind of clients there log into a totally new experience, sync their data to a totally new platform and have com complete kind of loss of control there. But instead leveraging RightFoot, they're able to launch that within the existing user experience and even charge uh, revenue for that. So they could have a new revenue stream. Um, and then additionally, the third bucket of clients who we're selling into are ecosystem applications or digital wallets. So you could think about anytime there's money flowing through the veins of an application, you have the opportunity to take a portion of those funds and send it to a user's loans. Um, so for example, let's think about a POS system. If RightFoot were to integrate with a POS system, we could actually tip directly to a waiter or waitress's student loans. Oh, oh that's great. Yeah. So, so there's so many different opportunities here. Think about an integration with a company like Etsy. What if I'm selling something on Etsy and I want, I want 5% of all of my sales to go automatically to my highest interest loans? Or what about if I'm a Twitch streamer and I want to stream on Twitch and have all of the money from that stream go automatically to pay off my debt? Or what about if I'm uh, an artist through the Patreon um, website and I want to send money directly to an artist's student loans? I can do that. So there are so many ways that you can support people. And what we found is that people would be actually more generous if they're able to make these tips directly to a waiter or waitress's student loans, for example. The idea of specificity generates more generosity, you're saying? Exactly. How is selling to developers different from selling to HR? Oh man, what a question. They're completely different, right? So what they're looking for, that experience is going to be different, um, how they're able to experiment, the timelines that they move on, the requirements that they have from their own clients or stakeholders are completely different. And what we're developing now is a totally self-service experience for engineers. Um, so to be able to come to the website and get your sandbox keys, get your production keys without actually having to talk with anyone. So like our director of engineering, Will says, uh, you know, engineers don't want to actually have to talk to salespeople. They just want to be able to get everything themselves. So it's about creating the best documentation possible, understanding where people have challenges, what are the opportunities where they're looking to dig in deeper on, and how can you best support them? It's a very different sales motion than if you're selling directly into HR. They're looking at what are my clients looking for? How can I offer this according to certain timelines, looking at benefits cycles, um, looking at all the sort of different stakeholders involved in an organization where oftentimes a developer might be able to make a, a decision a bit quicker. Now, is selling a developer, selling an API, is that inherently a bottoms-up sale? So we're approaching it from kind of 
both ends. Um, so the bottoms up sale is our self-service developer portal, being able to have that grow in, you know, let's say however many hundreds of different clients who have it. And of course, some of them will start to see pretty significant growth, just like in any sort of self-service portal. So for example, you know, companies like Plaid or Stripe, you know, they, they make it as easily as accessible as possible to developers and, you know, some companies or some developers will be testing and figuring it out. And then some of them will just take off. And so that, that bottoms up approach is really kind of interesting and it's exciting to study and figure out what does it look like? How can you help as many people as possible get into the platform in as frictionless a way as possible? And then from that kind of top down sale as well. So I lead sales at Right Foot today, and we have all the kind of conversations with C-level executives at benefits companies, um, at banks, um, at financial institutions in general. And these conversations are also, you know, really exciting and really interesting to, to do discovery and find out what people are looking for and how can you change. And I think the kind of the top-down sales process will really inform the bottoms-up sales process as well. How can we make it, you know, as best of an experience as possible? What are people looking for and how can you sort of streamline that and understand how to make it more efficient from both ends? I've written about uh, the bottom-up sales process on my website, Adventure Patterns. And one of the things I've noticed is in order to do that successfully, I think you have to have transparent pricing, which mm -hmm. which you do have. Um, do, do you agree that that's an important part of it? Yeah, I'd say um, it's definitely an important part of it. And we value transparency and being able to share with clients what would that look like. And I think when you get to larger companies and you have certain amounts of volume commitment, um, it's definitely, uh, I'd say, more difficult to have that transparency because so many different companies have different requirements or different kind of levels that they're at in terms of volume. So if you do look at, uh, you know, a lot of self-service sites, it will say enterprise contact us, you know, what does this look like? Um, and so we've even been thinking about, should we have kind of more um, information for the enterprise tier about what that looks like for them? So, Hey, if you were to even hit, you know, certain amount of volumes, here's as low as the pricing can be. I think transparency in general in the pricing world is just something that we value as a company, but we've seen a lot of other kind of folks in the space, maybe not sharing pricing. And so it, it, it's an interesting, uh, you know, kind of, a, there's no one approach um, that I'd say has worked for anyone specifically, but um, we're always open to hearing people's thoughts and feedback and understanding what would be more clear to them or more effective for them to be able to use it as an input for their own products. Thank you for that. Don't just listen, get engaged. Join our giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. And who knows, the startup that you fund may be on Startups for Good one day. We step back a little bit. You said, uh, as you were listing out you and your co-founders' core competencies, you mentioned yours being around experience with APIs with IBM. And I'm curious how you got into that, particularly the decision to go to Asia out of school. Yeah, I actually have a funny story there. So... I was applying to jobs my senior year at Tulane and I had a friend who was in New York City and he was working at, at IBM in the consulting program. 
And he told me, okay, Danny, you know, I told my manager about you. You've just got to fill out all the applications online and submit them. And we'll be looking out for that. And so I went to IBM's website and they have this program for new graduates. And so I was filling out the application form and I saw on the right-hand side that there was the ability to quote, add to basket any of the other countries that IBM operated in and had a program for young graduates. And so I just clicked add to basket to about 70 different countries and offices there and just whisked off my application, not really expecting to hear back. And Singapore called me on my cell phone and said, hey, you know, we got your application. We'd like to interview you. And um, actually, at first, I wasn't sure if it was real. Um, my dad was nervous that it was a scam um, and because so, I had to send my passport and my information. And long story short, I ended up getting offered the job out there. And, you know, it was on a local um, Singaporean salary and there was no sort of expat or relocation benefits, but I figured I could um, sort of scrape by and make it work. And it was the best decision I ever made. I learned so much out there. I worked with such amazing people. It was so exciting. You know, I remember my first project was in the Philippines at a bank. And I just was so amazed when people would just start speaking in Tagalog in the middle of the meeting. And, um, you know, I would say, is this real? You know, this is so much fun. And I studied international relations and economics. And it was just really, you know, totally up my alley to be in a, a new country, a new environment, a new office and exploring and learning. And I had the most amazing experience while I was out there. Sounds wonderful. I've recently been reading about the history of Singapore and it's fascinating. Definitely. Uh, is right foot selling an Asian market? We're not today. We're really focusing on the U.S. markets. However, um, as we feel this pull from our clients to expand across additional consumer debt verticals, um, you know, it, it's very possible we'd be able to expand, um, you know, overseas in the next um, kind of upcoming future. But really, you know, what we're seeing from our clients is this idea of, hey, you guys have these awesome student debt repayment rails today, but my clients also have credit card debt. They also have auto loans. They have mortgages. Can you help with that too? And so being able to create flexible, comprehensive debt repayment APIs is our vision um, and we'll be headed towards credit card debt repayment in Q3. Um, we already have a number of clients who are really excited to, to leverage those rails, but being able to provide this flexible, holistic solution for clients is something that really increases the value prop and makes things a whole lot easier for developers. Cool. When you decided to go to business school, did you know you wanted to become a founder? Yeah, I did. I think um, it's funny because when I was in Asia, I had this idea for a company and I remember telling people about it. And I remember going to coffee shops over the weekend and just sketching out my sort of, you know, user centric design and what I wanted it to look like and uh, kind of going through the motions and the process of this design thinking process that I learned at IBM. And as I, you know, came back to the US, I applied to Stanford with this company's idea in mind and kind of soon realized during the testing phase that everything that I had developed was this idea in my mind. And I hadn't actually done any testing to see, do people actually want this? 
And so while at school, when we were able to actually take that initial idea and transform it into what right foot is today, it was such an exciting process to go through. And, you know, what I really learned is you can't be attached or fall in love with any idea because you really need to be open to looking at what the data says. Do people want what you're selling? Are you the right team for that? How can you actually create a product that people want and need and does good in the world? Because ultimately I wanted to start a social impact company. And when I met Deirdre, I knew that she was the partner that I wanted too. She had everything that I could have wanted in a business partner. We complemented each other so well. Um, and then after we met Will at the end of our first year, the you know leadership team just really came together. Um, you know, we all have the same uh passions and mission and vision, but our approach to problem solving is very different. And so having the sort of systems and processes in place on our team to be able to talk through challenges, to have one-on-ones, we have, um, you know, from a, a cultural perspective, every sprint, we have a retro and we have a happiness rating. How happy are you? What's one thing that we can do to improve that score? And so these sort of processes that we've put in place have been so helpful for building our company. And you never, you know, have a doubt or a question as to if someone uh, isn't happy, you know why, right? So you talk through that versus I think looking at other startups or, you know, things that maybe haven't played out. Definitely there's interpersonal challenges, but not having the kind of ability or kind of infrastructure in place to, to force you to talk through these challenges, I'd say is, is a, a, a reason why maybe some other companies fail, but being able to have everything in the open to collaborate, to understand people's perspective, to have the opportunity to say, you know, Hey, Danny, you know, what you said on this meeting didn't land on me well, and here's the impact that it had on me. And, you know, here's how I felt and I was hurt and here's what happened. And for me to be able to say, Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that was happening thanks. And, you know, it won't happen again. And then it actually not happening again is a really kind of critical piece of the interpersonal relationship with founders. And so having, having that, you know, ability to form that environment has been so helpful for us and has made the foundation of our team so strong. That's wonderful to hear about. I think you're so right. The key risks early on in a startup are do people want what you're selling? And does the team work together? Does it, does it, is it high productive team mm-hmm. and does it stick together? Um, it's a product and team, you know, do people want it and does the team work really important? Uh, I love that you shared some of the processes you built in early on to keep that team communicating and working well together. How did you make that decision those were the two co-founders. You mentioned that you you felt it strongly. You able to put your finger on what it was? I could probably tell you the moment when I knew um, Deirdre and I would be co-founders. So that was, we were first years at Stanford's MBA program and it was over the summertime and we were working on the company. And at the time we were really focused on how we could help people actually save more for college. So it was sort of the opposite problem of student debt. And it led to where we are today because what we realized is that no matter how much these students were to be able to save for college um, and you know open up a 529 college savings account and, and put those funds in, they were going to have so much student debt. And student debt was really their biggest challenge. And 
the problem that was sort of eating away at them. And we wanted to really focus on where that pain was. But kind of going back to when I knew, Deirdre and I actually lived in a retirement home together. So this is a funny story. Um, we didn't have funding for the company. And we, you know, we had student loans. We didn't have money to just go, uh, you know, have a home rental and not have an income. And so what we realized is we could actually live in a retirement home for the summer and potentially have free housing and free food. And this idea was pretty wild. It sort of came up and we said, hey, can we even run pilots and have, you know, high schoolers come in and teach basic technology services, like how to Skype with your grandkids or how to write a happy birthday post on Facebook. And they could get paid $20 for every hour that they're teaching a senior. And that $20 could actually go automatically um, into a 529 college savings account that we create for them. And so we could kind of, you know, kill two birds with one stone. One is we could have, you know, our, our summer kind of, you know, paid for and, and have stable financial lives. And the second one is we could actually test our hypothesis. And so we ended up doing that. And uh, it was actually really difficult to land that gig. So I called probably 120 maybe different retirement homes in the in the Bay Area made an entire list and calling everybody and all of them were saying no like you're not 60 years old you can't live in this retirement home um, or why would you want to do this or you know very skeptical of us and one home um, actually in the East Bay called Bayward Bayward <laughs> Baywood Court Retirement Home said, sure, come on over. Uh, we've got one room. So you guys will have to share a bed and, um, you know, we can host you for meals, but you'll be at different tables. Um, and you'll be interacting with the residents. And we'd also like you to do, um, some kind of teaching jobs. Like for example, can you deal, uh, blackjack and can you teach water aerobics and we said we are very much game for that and it sounds like the ideal summer um so while all of our classmates are you know uh on wall street or you know at their investment banking jobs and and swanky kind of you know uh going out and things like that we were living in a retirement home sharing a bed and eating dinner at 4 p.m every night and it was absolutely a blast and we were running our pilots we were, you know, I guess you could say if you're sharing a bed with someone for uh, a few months and at the end you realize you want to work with them because you're creating something really cool and no matter what happens, you're going to figure it out and you're going to be creative and you're going to find a solution. And that's how I knew, um, you know, I wanted Deirdre to be my partner and it was uh, really wonderful. Um, and then Will, we had met, um, I want to say in 2017 or 2016, perhaps 2017. And um, it was really great getting to know him. And we sort of had the founder dating experience where we got to work with him for, I want to say almost two years uh, before he became a co-founder. But what we realized is that we had been, you know, married to Will um, for all this time. And so we decided to make it official. And so um, we actually sent over uh, a pizza and it said, will you be our co-founder on it? Um, and just never will forget that that day. But, you know, Will has already always sort of been our co-founder. And so making that sort of official was a really exciting thing for all of us. Wonderful stories. I don't think I've ever heard of uh, someone embedding themselves 
so deeply uh, with their co-founder in, in a community like that. That that does sound like an intense experience. For sure. I'm curious if you could tell us about Right Foot by the Numbers today. So employees, customers, uh, yeah. investors, whatever you can share. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we are backed by Bain Capital Ventures, our lead investor. Um, we also are backed by Box Group, Semper Virons Capital. A bunch of our Stanford MBA professors have invested in us as well. Um, and in terms of the, the kind of the angels who we have on our cap table, we have some really great fintech operators. For example, uh, the co-founder and CTO of Plaid, um, William Hockey. Uh, we also have Omri, who was the CRO of Marketa, the previous COO of Venmo, uh, Mike, um, we have the founder of Orem and uh, the founder of Ernest, um, which is a student loan refinancing company as well, um, Lewis. So we've got some really amazing folks around the table. That's just some. Um, we also have execs at companies like Cash App and PayPal. And really being able to learn from this cohort of individuals has been an amazing experience. And I would definitely recommend for folks who are, are going in for their raises to be able to, to gather some really great people around the table who you could learn from. And, you know, maybe some companies, um, some leaders of companies who are maybe 20 steps ahead of you, um, but then some who are maybe two to three. So you could really learn from them and understand, you know, challenges of the market and um, how you can sort of approach hiring and how, how you can watch companies scale at an extremely fast rate and be just behind them. So we've got 10 um, employees today as well. We've got more than a dozen clients who are in the, the B2B world or who are selling directly into consumers. But since we sell into businesses, that's what it looks like for us. Um, we're also in the FinTech Innovation Lab out of New York City right now. So that's been really exciting. And as part of the program, there were five different financial institutions who actually selected us to work with us. So there are executive sponsors at each of these companies. Two of them are top five banks in the US. There are some pretty large players here, and it's really exciting to be able to navigate the landscape, see the interest from their company, understand how do you get through procurement? Um, what are the sort of security challenges for working with them? What does that look like? And being able to develop a comprehensive strategy for tackling everything everything there. But ultimately, how can you serve their clients in the best way possible? And so we're really excited to have that opportunity. And, and we're really, you know, flattered about all of the interest that there's been. And so catalyzing on that growth, we are looking to hire as many engineers as we can, um, especially back-end engineers. So if you happen to know anyone, Miles or whoever's listening, we're hiring and we'd love to hear from you. Wonderful. And I hope people do spread the word. When you mention some of those investors, you know, not all of them come to mind as being branded social uh, enterprise investors. And I know you mentioned you knew you wanted to found a mission-driven company. How has that conversation gone with investors uh, uh, during that initial fundraising and then later around mission? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've always said that we're a mission-driven company. Um, and so our investors are aligned with our mission and our vision. So that's really important to us. I think it's always about the investor at the, the company that you're, um, that they're working with. So what are their kind of goals? How do they approach 
different problems and, and tackle kind of different angles of the problem as well. And so Sarah Smith is our lead investor and we're just so thrilled to have her by our side. Sarah actually suggested and was sort of the, the first person who brought up um, this idea of a diversity rider for our cap table. And we were so excited about that. We'd actually never heard of that before. And so at Bain, um, they actually put in a diversity rider that made space at the table for underrepresented minorities um, and for women as well. And so that was a really awesome thing. We had 7% of our round outside of Bain um, that was committed to underrepresented VCs and for offering them a spot. And that was a really just great thing that when we started talking with other founders, they also didn't realize that that was an option or how to actually go about setting that up. And so kind of spreading awareness from that sense, um, if you can drive change from the bottom up and have all founders ask, you know, what does your cap table uh, look like? Um, you know, and then asking their VCs, what are your LPs look like? Um, what do your partners look like? What do the CEOs of your companies look like? And how can we kind of create and foster an environment of diversity? And holding firms accountable there is a really compelling thing, especially you know in a market where startups are sought after. As leaders at startups, how can you set the tone and say, you know, here's what I'm looking for and how can you actually make change from the bottom up? Can you explain how diversity rider works? I think that you're right. Not enough people know about it. Yeah. So basically what we said in our actual term sheet was we will make space at the table for VCs who are Black, Hispanic, LGBTQ, women, you know, uh, folks who maybe don't necessarily oftentimes have a seat at the investment table. And so when we do that, we basically make this legal effort to have diversity on our cap table. And so today our cap table is actually majority female, which is really interesting, especially in the fintech space that doesn't usually happen. But there's an intention from both the um, side of our lead investor, as well as from Rightfoot's side, to make that happen. And so other companies can actually kind of copy that as well and can say, you know, here's my commitment. When I see growth, I want others to be able to experience that upside. And so that's essentially how that works. Thanks for sharing that. I'm curious, what advice would you give to an aspiring founder? Think of yourself back a few years ago, what would you wish you would have known? I would say, you know, the team that you choose and, and the people who you surround yourself with is the most important thing. So find co-founders who you trust, respect, believe in, and who will challenge you to be the best leader possible. I'd also say find investors if you're going that path that you trust as well. This is, uh, you know, as they say, uh, a marriage, not sort of a, a dating um, environment. So if you're going to sign a term sheet with folks, make sure that you believe in them and you can see the future with them and really understanding what is your core value proposition to your clients? Who exactly are you serving and how can you be super focused on bringing that vision to life? 
There are going to be a lot of different distractions that pop up. I think time management is definitely, you know, the number one kind of, you know, challenge in this role is how do you focus on what you need to focus on because you're going to have, you know, your entire day filled up with meetings and how can you block the time that you need to actually make your company successful? Thank you. Um, Any particular book or article that you would recommend to aspiring founders? Yeah, that's a great question. We actually just read uh, The One Minute Manager, which is a book about management. It's definitely old school, but you know, as folks who have, I'd say we're, we're very comfortable with the leadership side of the coin, but management side of the coin is definitely something that, you know, it takes a lot of experience and it takes a lot of kind of, um, you know, work of working with those under you and saying, Hey, how could I be a better manager? What could I be doing differently? And so we actually read that book as a group. Um, we're now all reading good to great as a group as well. So we have a a book club at Right Foot. So there's a a kind of a variety of different kind of themes that we're approaching. So one is management. One is like, how can you actually uh, grow the company to be the best that it can be? And what does that look like as a leader? And then thirdly, I think, you know, all of the books about lean startup are really important as well. How can you set hypotheses? How can you test them? What does that sort of process look like? I love it. A book club. This is appealing to my nerdy nature. Uh, I can't get enough of it. I remember reading One Minute Manager. I couldn't tell you what's in it. I need to reread it probably. It's been a little while. I mean, you know, it's it's pretty old school. Like we laugh a lot about it, but I think that concepts behind it are are definitely helpful. And in closing, I'd love to know where people can follow you online and how they can apply for these engineer jobs. Yeah, definitely. So our website is www.rightfoot.com. Um, you're also able to reach us at info at rightfoot.com. Or if you'd like to get a hold of me, um, I can share my email address. It's just danielle at rightfoot.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing so much with us today. Of course. Thanks, Miles. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, dot com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website. 